So we're looking at Psalm 133. If you're grabbing the, the Pew Bible, which is tucked into the pew there in front of you, you can look on page 519. It's only three verses, and I'm going to read those three verses for us. David writes, he says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So we come to this psalm, Psalm 133, a psalm about unity, about the blessing of unity. And so this morning I want us to spend time reflecting on God's call for us to live united, living united and what that calling is for us. This, uh, this year has marked a pretty momentous year for our region, specifically uh, for our big sister city up in Atlanta. Atlanta, this was the debut season for Atlanta's uh, Major League Soccer team, MLS team. Uh, Atlanta United FC, Atlanta United Football Club. And uh, I, I just want to share a few stats with you about Atlanta United just to show you that, that this particular soccer team that has shown up on the scene in Atlanta and has drawn um, some excitement from the surrounding two-hour drive from Atlanta uh, has been marked by the whole of the MLS. So looking at this, just a couple stats for you. So not only was Atlanta United, this was their first season, but they also made the playoffs in their first season, which is a big deal. And they hosted those uh, at the Mercedes-Benz, which some of us don't care for that particular place right now, but I think given some time, we will appreciate it. Uh, they had 67,221 people at that soccer game, which is a record for the MLS. It's the record for attendance at a playoff game. But before that... The Atlanta United crowds that gathered at two different times during the season, once the early in the season when they first opened the upper decks of the Mercedes-Benz, they had 70,425 people there, which was the record attendance for MLS game in their debut season, record attendance. They went on to break their own record with the final regular season game at 71,874 people. And then there's one more record that was broken, and that is, in the history of the MLS, there have never been as many tickets sold to soccer, regular season soccer games. They sold 886,625 tickets. So here's what I'm saying, is soccer, Major League Soccer showed up in Atlanta, and Atlanta got excited about it. And Atlanta gathered around it. I was watching a, a, an interview, a video this week about Atlanta United, and they had uh, an interview or an excerpt from an interview with a, a street artist from Atlanta. His name is Paper Frank. And so Paper Frank had this to say about uh, Atlanta United. He said, Atlanta United is a great name because we're here for each other. We're united as one. He says, all these people, all these Atlanta United fans, we all need each other. He says, I do a certain piece of art that might contribute to a flyer that might let people know that we have a soccer team and they should go to the game. Then you've got people who are making banners at the game. Then you've got people who are making the music in Atlanta that's used at the games. Then you've got the people who have decided that Atlanta needs to embrace a soccer uh, tailgate culture. And so there's a tailgate culture outside of the Mercedes-Benz. He says, and then we need to understand we are all ants in this colony. We are serving the queen, and the queen is Atlanta, he says. So his point is, we've united around this f soccer team. 
This soccer team has brought us together as a city is what he's saying. And we've developed this culture around this soccer team. And it's growing and it's made quite a splash in Major League Soccer. And I think the paper Frank's onto something when he says that he sees all these ants in the colony and they're all serving the queen and the queen is Atlanta. What unites people more than anything else is when we serve a common queen, a common goal, or as we know as the followers of Jesus, what unites us is that we serve the one true king, the Lord Jesus. But when we serve alongside one another, when we are serving together, united together, we're saying, all right, I bring something to the table, you bring something to the table, we are all a part of this, we are a part of this family, a part of this kingdom, and we serve the same king. What we have here in our text in Psalm 133 is we have David saying to his gathering in Israel, and it's been preserved for us and used by pilgrims for generations when they would go to uh, make their sacrifices and make their pilgrimages to Jerusalem, is that, oh, how good and pleasant it is when there's one king and we all serve him. And David's not saying that in a way that's drawing attention to David because you can see at the end of the psalm he says it's actually about the Lord. It's about the king of the king the one who calls and brings blessing through Zion. So this morning, what we're going to be looking at primarily is what it means to be living united. What's it mean? What is our calling to live united? Why is that our calling? How is that our calling? I want us to talk about our struggle with unity, our struggle with living united. I want us to talk about the fact that we're told it's a blessing. Why don't we feel like it's a blessing? Why don't we see it as a blessing? And then the last thing I want us to consider is that it's a guaranteed future for us. We will live united forever, serving our king, those of us who are followers of Jesus. So looking first at this idea that we're called to live united, that that's part of our calling. We look at Psalm 133, verses 1 and 2, where David says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. So the first thing I want us to draw attention to is to see what I mentioned just a moment ago is that David understands that living united is about dwelling as brothers under the kingship of God. David is saying here in this psalm, it is good for us to dwell in unity. What brings about unity? Historically, he's looking at the people of Israel and they've come out of sort of this this season of dissension, they have this season where there were factions where some were still following Saul, but some were following David. And even during the reign of Saul, there was this tumultuous time. There wasn't unity in the people. And so David now sees, not because David's so great, but because God brought the blessing of the king that had a heart after his own heart. David can look and say, isn't this better than what we saw before? Isn't it good? Isn't it pleasant for us to dwell in unity. So historically, he's saying, looking in his own moment in history, during his reign, he sees God bringing flourishing, not because he's such a great leader, but because God has united the people under a king after his own heart. And it's good, and it's pleasant. And then we, have, we see this text, which is sort of labeled a song of ascents, which means the pilgrims who were making their way to Jerusalem would sing this psalm. They would recite this psalm. On their way where there is no longer a united, 
And for generations after Solomon, it all fell apart. There was no unity there. And so it was a pilgrim song of longing for unity under one true king again. And it was a song that anticipated Jesus coming, the one true king who brings true unity through his reign. And so as we think about that, for us, uh, we are just like the early church, the early church until now. And one of the beautiful things about the book of Acts, and as you look at the, um, the letters of Paul and, and even on into some of the other epistles, you look and see that this, there's this unity, this living united that emerges because Jesus is reigning. When Jesus defeats death and pays the penalty on the cross for our sins, everything's changed for us. And we start seeing the implications of that in the way that the world changes after the resurrection. I mean, if you think about this, and one of the reasons that we, we have this chapter dedicated in Acts to this account, you had the Jewish population come to grips with the fact that unity meant not that the world would become Jewish, but that Jews and Gentiles would serve the same king. It was a radical unity. It was a bringing together of these two groups that were considered themselves polar opposites from one another. And yet because of the same king, followers of Jesus of Jewish lineage, which we would call Messianic Jews, and Gentile followers of Jesus, one kingdom, one king, they're united. So we see the good and pleasant, the goodness and the pleasantness of unity in the earliest of church because Jesus is that king who brings that kind of flourishing. And then we also see in this text, not only does, uh, is David saying, look, there's a unity, there's a goodness and a pleasantness when we are all brothers and we're brothers because we have the same king. He's also helping us understand that, that to live in that way is how we were designed. It's good and pleasant. And it harkens all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 when after God makes everything except man, he, mankind, he's moving through and every, he looks at his creation, it's good. He looks at his creation, it's good. He looks at his creation, it's good. And then he makes man in his image, male and female, he creates them. And then he looks at his image bearers in his world and he declares it very good. It harkens back that when we live in unity, it is living in unity with our one king, with our true king. It's living the way that God designed us from the beginning to flourish, to live as brothers and sisters with the same father and living as that type of family. And so it's, it's a hearkening back to the beginning, but also it's a projecting towards the future as well as Jesus lays that out for us as he called in the high priestly prayer when he prays that we would be one as he and the Father are one. There's a unity that we're being called into. And we can see it when, when uh, David here talks about this oil on the head that's flowing down onto the collars of the robe. I know for us, so I had the opportunity a couple weeks ago, uh, I had a, a woman who was um, here with the group and visiting and spending some time here this afternoon, uh, on one afternoon on First Pres's campus. She asked if I would come and pray for her and anoint her with oil, uh, which is something that we see in scripture. And I was, and so I did. And I went and I, I prayed with her. Uh, but the only oil that I had was corn oil. I'm gonna be picking up some olive oil. Corn oil is super gross by the way. She was very forgiving with the fact that I only had corn oil. 
But, but as I thought about that, like, when we hear the image of this good and pleasant pouring of oil all over our heads, we just don't know what to do with it. Because most of us think, that's gross. That's not something that I want to have happen to me. So how, what am I supposed to take away from it? And what I want you to understand is this is not a literal, every one of the followers of Jesus is going to have oil pulled over, poured over their heads. But as I, I'm going to read for us, and as our benediction a little while from 1 Peter, we are a royal priesthood. And so this imagery that, that David is leveraging is the imagery of consecration, saying that in the same way that Aaron was set aside for the purpose of being the high priest to the king, or high priest to the true king, high priest to God, in the way that he was consecrated for the calling as living as a priest in the world, Jesus tells us through 1 Peter that we have that same consecration. And so living united is a part of that calling. Living in unity with our brothers and sisters is a part of our calling. We're consecrated for it because we live in a world of disunity. We live in a world of fractured relationships. We live in a world where we are born in a fractured relationship, not with others, though that's true, but with God. And so the unity that's being expressed here, the unity that we're being called into is a unity that, is, that brings wholeness and restoration. We're consecrated to live as those who have been brought back into relationship. So a couple of comments here before we move on. I want us to understand that if, when we start to capture and start to really wrestle with the fact that God calls us to live united with other followers of Jesus, when he calls us into that kind of day-to-day -day living, that kind of weekly living, that kind of monthly living, we have to understand it's absolutely worth it. We need to live united to other brothers and sisters in this family and outside this family. If we have the same king, we're already united, but are we dwelling and living that union? Are we living that unity? The question isn't, are we united? The king has his subjects. We are one family. We are one kingdom. If Jesus is our king, are we living that way? And we need to know that it's worth it. We have to live that way. But I also want us to understand, when we say that it's worth it, make sure we understand what it is. What kind of unity are we talking about? There's only one type of unity that, that David has in mind and that God is drilling home for us, and that is a unity of a shared king. Not a unity of a shared goal, not a unity of a shared initiative, not a unity of a shared conviction. It's a unity of a shared king. And so when we look at this and we consider this, I want to read for you a, a quote from John Piper. I was reading an article of his. He said this. He said, it's never enough to call Christians to have unity because unity could be good or it could be bad. He said, the unified vote 50 years ago in my home church in South Carolina that forbid blacks from attending services, that was not a good unity. So to call Christians to unity is not enough. We could easily become united behind something that accomplishes either very little, nothing, or is not only counterproductive, but is sinful, as happened with his home church in South Carolina. And so it's not just a general call to unity. It's a call to unity because of our shared king. It's because Jesus is that atoning sacrifice, that reigning king for us. That's the only reason that we have unity with our Father. It's the only reason that we've been united to one another. And it's the one rallying cry of the true family is that Jesus is king. And we serve Jesus 
and he's loved us first. Now, that seems, I mean, honestly, when you, when you put it out that way, you're like, yeah, that sounds good. Why do we struggle so much with living united? Why is that a challenge for us? Why is unity such a challenge for us? And so I just want to spend a few moments talking about the challenges, our struggles. One is that I think we have oftentimes con- confused unity with uniformity. When we think that what we're called to is uniformity, when we don't see it, we assume that something's wrong. When really what might be wrong is our perspective. If we have a shared king, if we serve the same king, we are family. We may not look the same. We may not have the same preferences. But if we have the same king, then we're united. And so I'm going to read a quote for you from Josh Moody in the, uh, in the commentary that he wrote. He said, there can, be, there can be uniformity that's not unity. That is, there can be external, rigid, even forced agreement, which is very different from actual unity, which is oneness of mind, oneness of heart around the truth. And so when we talk about unity, we're talking about the unity of a shared king, which means that if Jesus is our king, we may be getting some things right and some things wrong, and that does not change the fact that if he's our king and we serve him as our king, we're still family, one with with another. So when we think about this struggle we have with desiring uniformity instead of unity, I want to boil it down to essentially two thoughts. One is, the reason that I think that God calls for uniformity is because instead of God being the king, I think that I'm the king. When I think I'm the king, then you're supposed to look like what I want my subject to look like. You're supposed to look like what I desire. That happens when we start believing that our preferences or maybe even some of our secondary convictions have become the ultimate. We have emerged, I would, you could say, we've emerged out of the the worship wars. I don't know if you believe that or not, but there for a long time, people were determining what kind of Christian you were based on whether or not your preferences and worship style matched up with theirs because somehow we had figured out what God loves best in the instrumentation of our worship. That's not something that we are struggling with here at First Pres, but that's part of the recent history of the church when we start believing that our preferences somehow determine not only our value, but they determine whether or not we are in right standing with God, whether or not he's our king. And we can't let our preferences suddenly determine whether or not we're willing to dwell in unity with one another. And it's more challenging when we talk about our secondary convictions. My convictions about the sacrament of baptism are convictions, and they're different than many of y'all, probably. Because Presbyterian churches in the South are mostly full of Reformed Baptists, technically. (laughs) And so probably, I disagree with a lot of you. And your convictions and my convictions are not the same. But we can dwell in unity. But we can dwell in unity because we've, for some reason, we're like, well, we took vows to be part of this church family. Well, those convictions are separating us from other Uh, The same convictions about baptism may be separating us from other brothers and sisters, and we have a much harder time being united with them. Maybe it's, I mean, not to step on, well, yeah, I am going to try and step on some toes, but maybe maybe we say, well, Jesus, Jesus doesn't want you to have your pastor preach on a screen. Jesus doesn't want you to do that. You've taken a secondary conviction that says, hey, we need to have a local preacher standing on a platform which I appreciate, thank you. Uh, and, I, and that is also my conviction. It's all of our conviction, well, probably a lot of our convictions, but that doesn't change our family status with those who disagree. 
with those who see a different emphasis being achieved through a different format. And I think what's more of a struggle for us than thinking that we're the king, I think the biggest struggle for us is thinking, not that I'm the king, but I know the king better than you do. I'm not the king, but I know what he likes more than you do. I'm not the king, but I can help you figure out how you can please him more. I've got the formulas. And the way that that shows up is oftentimes in a lot of biases that we have. Maybe it's a generational bias. The king is more pleased in the way that the baby boomers did it than the way that the millennials do it. The way that baby boomer Christians follow Jesus is with more clarity, with more definitiveness. These millennials fill it in, whatever it may be. Or maybe it's not a generational bias for you. Maybe it's a cultural bias. Maybe it's a, a cultural bias that has also for us become a heritage bias that says that my white Anglo Western European heritage, including my theological heritage, that that somehow determines that if you're not part of that same heritage or you will not adopt that heritage and call it your own, that you're not part of the family. It's not so. Now, do I think we should jettison our, our heritage? Do I think I sh we should jettison our theology? No. If we disagree with it, well, then... Yes, we should do what we think God actually teaches, but I actually think he teaches what's collected in our confessions and in our catechisms. But it's because I believe that those match with what he said. But he's the king. And so I serve him as the king, and if someone disagrees with me on what I think the king has told me to do or how to do it maybe is a better way of saying it, then we can have that disagreement we can have that conversation. We can agree to disagree on things. But at the end of the day, we serve the same king. And we are family. And then if I look here at this, this question, this is the hardest one for me, and, it's, and, and I don't have a definitive answer for you. Uh, how much can we differ with and still be considered family? How much can we differ about and the only thing that I know with certainty is it's more than I'm willing to admit. That's all that I know. Because I'm convinced that it must be a lot less than it actually is. Or I think a lot more. Whichever one matches with what I said previously. That's what I meant. And then the second struggle that we have, and I think Piper does a great job. Man, I'm almost out of time. Well, this might be, this might be the sermon next week too. So hang in there. Piper called, he... he uh, in that same article, he said this. He said, the experience of Christian unity, it includes affectionate love, not just sacrifice for those who you don't like. It's a feeling of endearment. We are to have affection for those who are our family in Christ. As it says in Romans 12, love one another with brotherly affection. I think one of our struggles is we have believed the lie that tolerance is enough that we can tolerate other Christians and that has checked the box of unity and brotherly affection and it has not. It's not less than tolerance for those who have the same king, but it is so much more than tolerance. It's affectionate love for one another. Where did my notes go? Those aren't them, okay, good. As we think about this affectionate love that we're supposed to have for one another, that means that if I love my tribe and only my tribe, which was happening in Israel, 
I love my tribe, or for our day and age, I love my denomination, or I love my group of podcast people, or my network, or whatever it is. I love my tribe, but only my tribe? That means I don't love my king. I love the chance to be king. I'd love it if we were all king together, but it's not a love for the king because we're not loving other members of the family that he has purchased with his own blood, with his own body. And so for us, we need to understand tolerance is too little. And then in closing, before we come to the table, united as family to gather around the table that Jesus has given us. I'm not going to be able to get around to talking about our future, but I do want to talk about the fact that this is truly, to live in unity, is truly good and pleasant. And all too often, we don't actually believe that. The Bible teaches us in Ephesians that we're supposed to be mutually submissive one to another. But if I asked you, would you like to be mutually submissive with someone or would you like for someone to be submissive to you? One of them is going to resonate with you and say, wouldn't it be more good and pleasant for me if you would all submit to me? But the problem is if we all think that the things would be best and good and pleasant if everyone submitted to us, no one submits to anyone and nothing is ever good and pleasant. And that's how it was after the fall. No goodness and pleasantness ever comes from sin and sinful brokenness. That mutual submission is because we serve one king and we serve that king together. And so because he is our king and we're not the king, we actually have been made family that can be affectionate with folks that we disagree with. And not only can it be, we're called for it to be. And when you and I are affectionate with those who we disagree with and when we stop demanding for uniformity as opposed to unity, what we'll find is that David was right as he wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that when we live in unity with one another, it is truly good and pleasant. It is truly to experience life the way that God designed us for and the way that he ushers us into as he gives us new life. So I would encourage us as we look at this year and whatever God brings our direction this year, no matter what your personality type is, no matter what your personal history is, you will flourish, spiritually flourish, like the dew that came from the big mountain to bring fertility to the little mountains. You will flourish when you're living united to brothers and sisters, not in uniformity, but in true affectionate unity. Let's pray.